Good evening, everyone. Welcome to our session on EPF, Bitcoin and more. I'm glad to have Han with us here tonight. He's a certified financial planner, chartered financial analyst, ex-CEO of Ring It Plus, and now he's the head manager of Halogen Capital, Malaysia's first licensed fund manager specializing in digital assets and innovative investing. Yeah, Han, welcome back to the session. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Happy yeah, we Wednesday. Yeah, we, we are supposed to have uh, our other speaker here with us also, Mr. Tani, but unfortunately, he's a bit caught up on things, so he won't be here with us tonight. And uh, we will cover Bitcoin's recent comeback and crypto as an investment class. We will also talk about why Bitcoin is unique, if it is, and whether it's too late to invest in this asset or not. After that, we will transition to EPF matters. The Retirement Fund has recently released its quarterly report, I think it was uh, two weeks ago, which showed quite a jump in investment income. So we will have Hunt to talk about some of his predictions on EPF's 2023 dividend. Just a quick disclaimer before we start, the session should not and cannot be considered as financial advice, despite Hunt's qualifications. Huh? And throughout the session, if you guys in the audience have any questions at all, don't be afraid to send us a DM comment it at the comment section bottom right hand corner or uh, you can step up as a speaker during the Q&A session. All right, since January, Bitcoin has made quite an impressive run. Huh? I think some of you guys are well aware. The asset is up 128% on a year-to-date basis. Yeah, that's uh, almost 130% return in just span of 11 to 12 months. It has vastly performed other asset classes such as the S&P, which is up almost 20% within a similar time frame. Gold, yeah, up a measly 12%. And our Malaysian market, uh, this is a bit embarrassing thing to say, lah, but the FBM KLCI is down 2.29%. So yeah, Han, let's uh, open a session. What's with Bitcoin? Um, we'll start with the fundamentals a bit first. What makes this asset you know, unique compared to traditional asset classes? Well, the big one right up the top, I guess, but we're waiting for uh, the more traditional kind of people to join in. We'll talk about Bitcoin first, no problem. <laughs> so I guess uh, Bitcoin is many things to many people. Uh, I don't think we have the time to go through the full whack. Uh, but I'll start by saying what it is first. Uh, so for those of you who don't know, uh, um, I can best summarize it. You, you can't quite do that, but I'll best summarize it as uh, it's, it's, digital, it's digital transferable value uh, recorded on an immutable decentralized ledger, right? So, okay, uh, uh, you will hear things like peer-to-peer -peer network, you will hear things like uh, it's a cryptocurrency, but, but I, I, I summarize it to that kind of very long kind of 10-word sentence, right? Digital transferable value recorded on an immutable decentralized ledger. So let's go through each word one by one, right? So number one is digital. So yes, it works mostly uh, in the magic internet world. Uh, uh, the, you know, there are solutions to get it offline, etc. But you know, for the most part, it works on the internet. Uh, second to it was transferable value. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, value, you know, is, is, a, is a big, big broad word, but essentially it's you can say value, you can say wealth, you can say money, you can say riches, you can use whatever word you want. But uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an expression of value and it's transferable. Just like how you would move 
uh, money from one bank to another is transferable that way, right? You do it now or you use IBT, whatever. Just like you would you, uh, transfer, uh, uh, you would trade, you know, magic the gathering cards with your friend last time. That's kind of transferable. Uh, but in Bitcoin's world, it happens programmatically by the, what, what we, we call the Bitcoin network uh, every 10 minutes uh, on average, right? So it's just uh, something that happens. I'll explain how it happens later. Uh, what's the next word? Um, uh, it's immutable. Um, yeah, I mean, that word is it's a very big word, but long story short, it means uh, you, you can't alter the past. You can alter the future, meaning you can change things. Uh, if something goes wrong, you can kind of reverse your transaction, but you can't delete a transaction, for example. Uh, and last two words was what? Decentralized ledger. Okay, uh, okay so it's kind of a financial statement, a financial statement of sorts. Think of it as a very big Google sheet, right, that everyone can see. Some people can write on it. Uh, you can't overwrite it. Uh, but rather than sitting on Google server in kind of Silicon Valley or Singapore or whatever, um, the, the sheet of, of these transactions, transferable value transactions, is, is stored on millions of individual servers, right? We know them as miners and, and nodes, etc. But let's just, for, for the sake of ease, for, for understanding, right? It's just stored on millions of servers. Uh, it's, you know, and it's updated, you know, frequently. Right? Uh, can say 10 minutes, can say longer, shorter, up to you. Uh, and it's not controlled by a specific company like Google. Right? So, wow, lots of words. Uh, but long story short, it's, it's programmable digital transferable value, which is recorded on an immutable decentralized ledger. Now, that sounds very technical some, to some of you. To me, uh, to an investor, uh, very simple, right? Enough people buy, sell, store, use Bitcoin. Um, uh, when I say enough people, you know, there's like over 100 million people do one of those four things, buy or sell or store or use it to pay for stuff, such that we can almost think of it as like a individual country or sovereign state's currency, right? Uh, it's like a call, we call it a Bitcoin country for Bitcoiners, right? Why? Because they use it to do those things, right? Buy, sell, they buy and sell it. Uh, they store it, they use it, right? To pay for things. Uh, that it's a, so it's almost like a country, right? You think of a country with 100 to 300 million people. What, what country is that? Indonesia is a country with about 300 million people. Uh, uh, Nigeria, a big country, a couple hundred million people there, Pakistan. So uh, think of it as, as that, right? So, and those people use their own currency and that currency has value, right? Because you, a currency can be priced as an asset, right? In other people's currency. So as an investor, you can think of it like that. It's kind of an investment asset. Uh, why, why does it have value? Because you know, enough people use, buy, sell, store, transfer it. Uh, so long story short, I don't know, there was a five minutes enough uh, uh, primer on Bitcoin, but hopefully it gives uh, people a, a sense of what this is, what people talk about it. Yeah, Han, definitely some great points you touch over there. Later, we can actually circle back and try to uh, dumb it down a bit for those people who are still pretty new to this asset. And we try and uh, explain things as if people are you know, 5 to 10 year olds so that we uh, keep it at the uh, baseline level. Now, Bitcoin itself has formed some sort of barrier, right? It's like there's two very extreme communities. You either hate it or you really love Bitcoin. So now I suppose the hate is probably because Bitcoin itself is digital and therefore not tangible, which is literally what uh, a lot of the haters are trying to, to say this. Uh. And in this case, Han, what are your comments on this? Because uh, you talked about currencies just now and, and the US dollar, even though it's a fiat currency where the government central banks, they are printing it. 
but it has some sort of value. People can argue that the United States military is in this, the United States economy is in this, yada, yada, yada. And what about Bitcoin? What actually uh, gives it value in itself? No, really good question. Um, I get asked this a lot, right? A lot of people use the statement to say, hey, look, like, is it, what's, what's the value? Uh? Is there intrinsic value? Is there fundamental value? What's the fundamental value of this thing? Um, there are a few through, but at the base layer, meaning the, at the fundamental level for somebody who's just a casual investor, if I explain to you, hey, look, uh, uh, the network itself enables value transfer, right? And, and what I mean by that is, so, you know, I want to give you money or give you value. Uh, and you can accept it, and you can accept it in 10 minutes around the world, anytime, anywhere uh, around the world, right? And then you think, hey, but don't we have things like that already? It's called like Visa, MasterCard, Amex, right? Yeah, Visa, MasterCard, Amex are actually uh, services which do exactly this, right? And guess what? They have significant value, right? They, they take a small transaction fee from doing all this around the world, like Visa, MasterCard, Amex. And... Um, they are actually just software, right? Uh, they are software uh, which enables this. They connect to banks, they connect to merchants, right? And, and software enables this. So it's technically also digital. Uh, I know Visa and MasterCard and whatnot have people, right? Uh, they have, you know, head of Visa in Malaysia, head of MasterCard, whatever. But at the fundamental level, you think about what Visa MasterCard does. It's just, it's just a lot of software, right? <laughs> right? That allows for people to... Uh, receive payment or make payment, right? So similarly, if I give you that 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 that, that clue already, right? You know these these payment networks are multi multi hundred billion dollar businesses, right? Despite being just software, I think that uh, that that should give everyone a sense of one of the various values of this thing. Now that's that's just at at the fundamental base layer of hey, what's the use of this thing? Uh? I already told you the use of this thing is that, and what's more powerful is that there's full settlement in ten minutes, right? Uh, settlement is a complicated thing. Yeah, uh, we don't really feel the need for settlement because we, we transact so small that uh, to us, it feels like things are settled immediately. Like you do it now, somebody, you, you know, they receive money instantly, right? So you assume it's settled, right? But in, re in reality, what happens is that um, there's a bank behind and it's not actually settled. They need to update their books at the end of the day. Sometimes they involve other banks. It's all very complicated, but long story short, uh, uh, it's one of the few things that has, you know, near instant settlement within 10, 20 minutes. Um, and that has value, right? So just in short, lah, that's, that's one of the values. Obviously, there are several other value propositions that have cropped up as a result of this base layer value, right? Several value propositions like, oh, because it can settle so fast, I feel confident using it to store my money uh, as a store of my wealth. Oh, then th that creates store of wealth as a value, etc., etc. Mm -hmm. And we also did not really touched on uh, Bitcoin's limited supply also. Uh, do you mind uh, elaborating a bit more on that, on how Bitcoin is only limited to 21 million and that nobody can print any more of it? Yeah, I mean, until someone forks it, which has happened in the past. Uh, but so far, uh, and, and sorry, when I say has happened in the past, I mean the, the uh, fork to something else that ended up not taking off. Uh, but you know there could be a fork later at uh, some point down the future that does take off that, that changes that but ultimately part of what gives this network its value is that uh, as or at least as a confidence for people to store their wealth into this thing is that it has a telegraphed yeah or programmable programmed uh, 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 supply schedule it means like uh, it, it's like a little central bank that that you you can't 
you can't control because it's already been programmed to release more units. Uh, I use this word, sorry. More units. Uh, Bitcoiners hate me. Uh, more units of this 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 asset into the world. Um, at the moment, I think it's like six twenty five, six point two five bitcoins every ten minutes or so. Every block they call it, um, and it drops every four years by half, such that uh, the I think by twenty one forty there will be about twenty one million bitcoins in existence and no more ever, right? I think it's now at nineteen point five or so. Um, and it'll go to 21 million and no more. So there's very little Bitcoins being generated by the system uh, programmatically anymore. So that, that gives it its limited supply, which is in contrast to pretty much every single other central bank in every other sovereign currency, which there is no programmable supply. It, the supply is determined by the central bank itself or between the government and central bank. I want to print more money, I'll print more. I want to print less, I'll print less. So it's not so programmable, right? And, uh, or programmed. And because it's, it's highly programmed, uh, it gives people confidence that, hey, look, if I buy a Bitcoin today, there's only, been 20, there's only going to be 21 million ever created. Uh, so I'll own one of 21 uh, million, which might have value, a significant value in the future. Yeah, the scarcity part is uh, probably one of the main, I would say, attractions for those people who are currently heavily into Bitcoin right now. But, you know, quite, quite a lot of people are still having very bad nightmares about the bear market in 2022. Uh, Bitcoin fell more than 77% from its all-time high of $69,000 in November 2021 to 15500 all in the span of less than a year. So, obviously, a lot of people left the market last year and, and, and the year before. But recently, we are seeing interest in the crypto market pick back up. And like I said just now, Bitcoin is up 125% since January, uh, vastly outperformed other asset classes. But let's just talk about the volatility of Bitcoin. Do you mind talking to us a bit about why this asset is so volatile? Why can we see like 50, 70 or even 100% swings in you know, the span of a few months? That's uh, a really good, really good question, really good point. Thank uh, just I'm putting a bit of context on what you said earlier like, around like uh, falling more than 77% all that stuff from November 2021. Uh, for me, like it's up 20, 125% year to date, partly because of it's a relic of our year to date kind of measurements, right? We think in calendar years, right? And it just so happens that the depth of kind of uh, cryptocurrency as a whole, the bear market, the winter, whatever we call it, was in November, December last year. So, you know. You know, actually coming out of that January becomes the, the start of New Year and everything in calendar terms. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> uh, it's up to 125% this year, just like it was down, uh, what do you say, 77 from November 2021 to kind of December 2022. Yeah. Um, big, big volatility swings, right? I think if you, so as, a, as an investment person, right, I, I will distill, distill or summarize the volatility in kind of three, three big factors, right? Um, uh, first, it's kind of economics driven, right? Number one, it's, I say limited supply, but actually it's, it's programmed supply, meaning no matter what happens, there's, there's the supply is programmed. We discussed that earlier, right? At the moment, 6.25 uh, uh, Bitcoins every 10 minutes or so on average, right? And that doesn't change with what, regardless of what prices are, right? So when, when uh, uh, this is in contrast to things like gold, right? Or oil, right? When gold prices are high, you know, you get lots of gold mines turning on within months, you know, and then pushing down uh, that, that kind of 
uh, exuberance in gold prices and, and vice versa, right? So if there's like a big uh, a, a gold supply going to the market, suddenly, you know, it affects the price downwards to counteract the demand. And likewise, oil and gas, sometimes, you know, when oil goes up by 100, to, to, you know, to 100 bucks a barrel, suddenly shale becomes profitable. So more shale guys come on, push more supply into the market, etc., etc. OPEC aside. La. So the point, point here being is that supply is programmed and limited, right? Limited and programmed, right? Yet demand uh, is, you know, uh, changes, right? Highly elastic. So here comes the second factor, which is uh, significant retail participation in this asset class. Lots of uh, uh, percentage of re retail versus institutional, right? And retail, uh, as the saying goes, the retailers are the most exuberant and the most uh, fearful, right? So the large swings if it's just retail investors or retail participation. So demand has significant swings, yet supply cannot, uh, you know, uh, stretch up and down to to counteract that. That causes a lot of volatility, right? Imagine like I can't do anything about supply; it just goes there. But like demand so high now, I can't I can't build more Bitcoin uh, emissions. It just it's just six point two five every ten minutes in this in this cycle, right? I can't do anything about it. That causes a lot of volatility, right? Up or down, right? So there's imagine there's no uh, no demand like crypto winter last year, right? Supply keeps going, right? And you can't stop supply in 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 response to lower demand. Just like you can't create more supply, right? So that's kind of the second big factor. I mean, and third, I guess the third factor for volatility in Bitcoin is is the asset classes immaturity. Right? So, uh, most asset classes have been around for decades, right? Even new things like derivatives, like they actually they were created in the seventies, right? Fifty fifty years plus already. Uh, uh, but Bitcoin less than fifteen years old. Uh, uh, going to be fifteen years soon. But you know, it's it's the most mature cryptocurrency. But as an asset class, it's it's less than fifteen years old, right? The entire asset class. Uh, and any new asset class, you know, you get things like speculative demand and supply. Sorry, speculative demand <laughs> to to this fixed supply causing volatility. Uh, there's things like bad actors in the space. We've seen that with with twenty twenty two stuff, FTX, Celsius, etc. Uh, uh, lack of regulation, right? Creating lots of boom and bust cycles. That that causes volatility, right? And and lastly, I guess related to my second point, there's a lack of institutional uh, investors. Imagine if you know a big institutions are in, they are less likely to 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 buy or sell on a whim, right? They in fact they will do the opposite. When prices go high, they sell. When prices go low, they buy, right? Because that's what institutions tend to do. They tend to rebalance their portfolios that way. Uh, and that dampens volatility. And we're seeing that, right? The last 10 years, volatility has gone from, you know, over 100%. Sorry, this is more financial stuff, but, you know, I'm happy to talk about what that means. But 100% uh, volatility in contrast to equities at kind of 15 to 20%. Uh, but in recent years, last two years, it's been closer to 40% volatility for Bitcoin. So only about double, two and a half times of, of equity markets. So, uh, Immaturity plays a part. So one, two, three. Number one, limited supply, but you know, stretchy demand up and down. Number two, significant percentage of, of retail versus institutional. And number three, uh, immaturity of the asset class causing, you know, uh, you know, there, there are bad actors and not well regulated causing the boom and bust cycles to be even worse. Yeah, thanks for those points, Han. Uh, I guess the sentiment in this asset is also ever-changing though generally it's going more and more towards the positive direction every year but yeah we are seeing this pattern every year china is banning bitcoin and then last year during the bear market 
crypto exchanges were collapsing left, right and center. We've got the FTX debacle, the Celsius crisis. And right now, interest in the market picked back up. Why? Because more recently, the US Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, is rumored to approve a Bitcoin spot ETF within this or next year. And then a lot of institutional or retail interest return to the market. And just to really hammer on that point, these are just external factors, i.e. bad actors, right? It does not affect Bitcoin's original code or how Bitcoin works uh, as it is, right? Yeah, no, these are, like I said just now, right? Like, um, Bitcoin is programmed limited supply. It doesn't change, right? Um, uh, until someone hard forks it and then it's not called Bitcoin anymore or they might call it something else. Uh, but at the moment, the supply is limited and and fixed for now, right? It just keeps, every 10 minutes on average, just keeps pushing 6.25 more Bitcoins into the market. And then there's a natural demand which picks it up, right? But, but demand is super elastic. You know, in 2021, lots of exuberance. Everyone wants some, um, you know, not enough Bitcoins being my, created for all that demand pushing the price up. Then other cryptos get created to absorb the excess demand. Etc. Etc. Twenty twenty two. The opposite happens. Nobody wants it due to all these scandals or all these uh, crises of FTX, Celsius, etc. Um, but the supply continues, right? So for me, that's kind of the big, big, big one. Um, and I think if you look at the last kind of twelve months, right? It's been twelve months since FTX, uh, give or take, right? Um, the first wave of kind of retail coming back was partly actually just a bit of a self fulfilling prophecy. Like things are so bad. You know, let's start turn off the turn out the new year and and then things will be better. It's a bit of a self fulfilling prophecy. Three years bad, or actually one year bad in Bitcoin. The next three years will be good. So lots of retail start coming back in January. It pushes the price up from kind of uh, high fifteen hundreds, low sixteen thousand. Sorry, high fifteen thousand, low low sixteen thousand US dollars. You know, up to about twenty something, twenty one, twenty two. That was the first wave, kind of January, February. Uh, and then the, the second, I guess, big, big move in Bitcoin in this year was in March. And this was a special move for me because um, for those of you who don't know, I worked in banking in 2006, 7, 8, 9, 10. So before, during, after the financial crisis where people are not sure if banks are going to survive. Banks don't trust each other as counterparties. And, and, and there was a small risk in March that that might happen again. Right, that might have happened again, right? The same 2008 crisis happens in, happened, would have happened in March of the risk before things got rescued, right? By, by uh, interesting progress being, being created by the Americans. But American banks, a couple of banks went bust. That one actually uh, also was under trouble. I think three banks, uh, you know, and, and far bigger than those that went bust in, in the financial crisis, like to give you a sense. So actually there was a banking crisis in, in March. And when the banking crisis happens, uh, this has been the first large-scale banking crisis, right? Uh, you know, uh, since Bitcoin was created, and that's when you really say, "Hey, we need something, right? Where, like, like I'm not depending on one one counterparty to tell me uh, to hold my money or tell me whether what 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 is the true uh, position of things, right? And and that's when people started realizing, "Hey, actually, there is an asset now that wasn't in the crisis 2007, 8, 9, 10, uh, but there is one asset now." that can do exactly that. And that's when a lot of retail and some institutional, but mostly retail people started to see Bitcoin in a whole new light. Hey, look, actually there is an asset when we don't trust banks anymore and you know, banks are going bust in, in, May, in March last year, right? Uh, sorry, March this year. Banks are going bust. Like, uh, what, what do I do? Where do I put my money? 
in another bank, which I don't know if it's going bust or not. No, I better put it somewhere where I, uh, uh, it can't go bust, right? Uh, or really, it can't be lying about what it does. Right? And Bitcoin was seen as that interestingly safe haven asset. And that drove up the price to kind of 30000 or so. Um, and in the last three to four months, the, the, big, the big driver was what you said. Uh, institutional adoption uh, is a play. Uh, that, what that means is uh, uh, big, big asset managers. Now, we are asset manager at Halogen, uh, but you know, obviously nowhere near the likes of BlackRock, Fidelity, Invesco, applying for uh, uh, mutual fund products or fund products, in this case ETFs, with crypto inside, Bitcoin largely, and a couple of Ethereum ones. So that signals to the market that, hey, look, Actually, institutions are now looking at this asset class seriously as an asset class. And that drove up the price uh, of Bitcoin and crypto as a whole to, to where it is today. So Bitcoin, I think today is trading at 38,000 US, right? And this is from you know, 16,000 late last year. So that's your 125% move. Like. Yeah, just to trace back on what you talked about just now, the banking crisis back in March this year, I just had a look at Bitcoin's chart. Wow, it actually surged 40% in the span of two weeks. Uh, really just showing uh, when the demand for this asset is there, you can really see it, you can really just see it skyrocket. So it's, uh, it's, it's very impressive and at the same time, kind of scary for some people also, right? Because actually, let's just dive into this point. Uh, how can we strategize and allocate our portfolio into such a volatile asset? Because I'm pretty sure that... Um, majority of the audience, or at least some of the audience over here, are afraid to go into Bitcoin or dip their toes into Bitcoin because the asset itself is so volatile. Yeah, when they put some money into it, I'm not so sure whether next week it's going to be uh, 30000 60000 or 15000 How can you, uh, Han, as an asset manager, what's your strategy in positioning in such a volatile asset? Uh, hello, can you hear me, Han? Hello, sorry, I muted myself. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, you muted us. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, what was I going to say? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, you know, this is what should I do about this asset class, right? Super high volatility. I can see sometimes it has super high returns too. What do I do, right? Because I've tried it in the past, I got burned. That's literally the, the number one thing that people tell me, right? And, and, and you know, my past life, financial planning, investment advisory, and today, uh, managing portfolios. I think what's most interesting is that most people treat, treat uh, Bitcoin or, or crypto as a whole as somewhere between a play thing, play asset. So like, hey, put a little bit, play a bit, lah, right? Uh, uh, and a gambling asset, right? Meaning like, okay, I wanna, I wanna take a risk. I, I wanna take a punt, right? I wanna gamble with this, you know, small bit, small amount with super large returns, right? Hopefully, and if you lose, also never mind. It's like gambling anyway. But conversely, honestly, the, the best way to look at this asset class is really as a financial asset. Let me explain to you why. Because, uh, you, know, as, you know, when I was kind of growing up, wrong with you, when I was coming up in my career, like this kind of asset was really hard to come by. Uh, 40 to 50% annual return asset over the last 10 years uh, with 40 to 50% volatility, sure. Uh, but important characteristic about this asset is that it's very lowly correlated to other asset classes, whether it's equities, bonds, gold, commodities, oil, it's actually, it actually behaves very, very, very kind of 
independently of those things. So what I mean by low correlation is when those things go up, it goes down and vice versa, right? And when I explain to a financial planner or financial advisor, hey, look, I have this asset, super liquid, right? There's 50, uh, 30 to 50 billion US dollars traded every day of this asset uh, uh, daily, right? On, on multiple thousands of exchanges worldwide. Um, it's 40 to 50% compound annual returns. It's 40 to 50% currently volatility. And it's got almost no correlation with any asset classes. Immediately, the light bulb take, uh, uh, clicks, right? They know exactly what to do with it, right? Ha, Han, then the thing to do is to put a little bit of it into my portfolios to just juice up the returns because then what I'll do is I'm able to control the volatility. I say, to, you know, if I'm a defensive investor, I'll have 1% to 2% in. If like, I'm a moderate risk investor, I'll have somewhere between 3 to 5% in. If I'm an aggressive investor, I'll have between 6 to 10% percent in of my portfolio, right? I I might have a 60-40, I might have a, a EPF plus a kind of equity unit trust plus a bit of uh, bond unit trust in my portfolio. I'll add a bit of this crypto or Bitcoin, right? And because of its characteristics, I can really juice up my returns. You know, I get, you know, extra 2, 3, 4%. But because of no, the correlation of Bitcoin with other asset, these other asset classes being almost zero, uh, I don't actually experience significant volatility or risk. I actually sometimes I have lower risk in my portfolio from adding Bitcoin, right? Whether it's one two percent for defensive, or six to ten percent for aggressive investors, I actually get significantly higher returns, right? It can be two, three, four, five percent more every year on average, uh, for almost no added risk, which for me is like uh, kind of the holy grail of of portfolio, right? To build a portfolio with more returns but lower risk, amazing, right? So that's what. We've been trying to educate people, educate people on, right? Which is, hey, like Bitcoin is very useful as a, a, a balancing asset to your portfolio, right? It really juices up your returns, yet may even sometimes reduce your risk, which is super counterintuitive to many people, right? When they think about Bitcoin. Yeah, I guess this is the part where people are still uh, sh struggling to understand. Um, but I think what we are talking about here is uh, diversification, uh, which I, I, you also mentioned this before, allocating your portfolio in a way that each asset has a negative to low correlation to one another. And you mentioned just now, uh, Bitcoin is pretty much negatively correlated to traditional assets at least. And uh, an example here, it definitely wouldn't be wise to allocate your portfolio entirely in gold uh, because uh, if gold goes down, then your portfolio will be down quite a lot. You know, a general good mix of uh, different types of assets. Yeah, we have Mr. Sunny here with us also. Mr. Sunny, welcome to the session. Are you here with us? Uh, hi, 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 Hans, and hi, CJ. Uh, sorry, hey, sorry, uh, I, I, I didn't put your put your face up in a poster because I, I didn't think that you would come. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, I was, I was, um, yeah. The reason I, I also requested to talk because the subject matter. Because just now I was in uh, another Zoom. Uh, we had invited, or rather, we we currently we meaning the company, uh, we've got a digital asset fund um, that we are distributing so the um, uh, the so-called CEO plus the chief technology officer uh, is in town so we actually arrange a session with our clients so I thought maybe I just wanted to add on to the earlier discussion about um, uh, the sectors the Bitcoin sector or the sector as a, as a whole um, so basically according to the CTO itself he's seeing so much activity you know while we see prices actually, you know, coming off, of course, recently going up, um, the activity taking place um, in the space itself 
And these are guys who are actually underneath underneath the hood, means to say that they are the ones, the developers, uh, the people doing, you know, talking to, to the institutions, uh, in trying to integrate uh, um, um, these these things into the what the institutions are doing, and so on. They are just seeing so much work. So I think it tells us that basically the space isn't dead, although some people may say the you know, price drops so much and you know, everything's dead and such. Uh, uh, to the contrary, um, um, the activity underneath the hood is actually at all time high. Um, and I think that goes to show that the the price decline, um, yes, it was due to a few factors. Um, of course, the macro side, number one. Uh, last year, everything fell. Um, we had, of course, the, the so-called micro issues with regards to three arrows um, uh, um, and all the other coins that blew up FTX and such um, and so on. And, of course, we have the, the threat of regulations. So all of these micro and macro issues push down prices um, and, and rightly so but i think we shouldn't forget the fact that that the sector isn't isn't going away the whole um, blockchain slash cryptocurrency uh, uh, asset class is is actually uh, uh, a permanent stay at this particular point um, nothing suggests that it's you turning in fact everything suggests that the institutions are pre preparing themselves. I just told some people the other day. I said, um, "It's it's weird, weird inverted commas that we that I have attended one or two um, uh, digital asset conferences in Singapore, uh, organized by um, uh, investment banks, people like BlackRock and such, um, amid what we call crypto winter. I mean, these guys, if they were not confident of of a rebound after this, why spend so much money organizing this and trying to position themselves as, as being in the space. So it tells you that, that they themselves believe that this is temporary, as this winter will give way to, 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 to spring and, and summer. And I think every all the institutions, uh, now that we've cleared the, the, the way, the path, from you know FTX, Binance, they're all out of the way in a way. Um, you know they are ready to come in in a big way to take over the the slack. So I think, uh, in summary, you know we I I think we are going to see uh, a a pretty strong and and high activity taking place in in the asset class in, in the months ahead. Yeah, uh, just to keep you there, Mr. Sunny, we were yeah. on the topic of uh, talking about how to position ourselves and uh, allocate into such a volatile asset, right? Like Bitcoin swings easily 50, 70 or even yeah. 100% in less than a few months. Yeah. And uh, you, you, you also heard Hans spoke just now about his uh, strategy. Do you agree or do you have a, a different sort of strategy when it comes to positioning into this? Yeah, yeah. yeah, I think it's correct. I think... Um... I think uh, what Hans mentioned is probably what most financial advisors, uh, I've read about what financial advisors are doing in the US also. And that is basically to position size it, meaning to say that um, given the high volatility, let's say for example, you've got 60, 40, 40, 60% volatility. So if you put a 3% allocation at a 50% volatility, uh, that's not too bad because that's almost equal to a 50% allocation in a 3% volatility instrument, which is a bond, for example. You know, so so when you position size your your uh, your instrument that is of high volatility, uh, net net 
actually you are you are kind of um, taking care of the volatility with a small size. So I think I'm, I'm totally agreeable with that. In fact, one of the discussion we had in, in that seminar I just left was that um, we are positioning our clients or we're telling our clients that we think, um, and this was brought up by, by, by the CTO and, and, and so on, uh, he believes that very soon we will be entering into the exponential part of the of the of the curve, uh, where you know the network effect, everything will take will take and bring bring this uh, asset class uh, onto a, a exponential path. And you all know exponential path means almost a straight line up, a straight line up. So in that in that scenario, uh, we think that basically the 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 risk reward is asymmetric. Asymmetric meaning to say that if the upside is 5x or 10x and your downside is basically you lose everything 1x, I mean, that's a good bet, meaning to say that, you know, I have a chance of making 5, 10, 15% times where, uh, for the risk of losing my, my capital. I mean, that, that to any trader or anybody, that to any uh, uh, investor is, is actually a good, a good proposition itself. The challenge, we, <laughs> ironically, the challenge is probably uh, two things. Number one is to make sure you get on board the correct instrument or even the correct cryptocurrency. Uh, because very much like stocks and shares back 10 years ago, you know, if you got onto the right one, i.e. Amazon, Microsoft and so on, then you probably would be sitting today on, um, you know, a big, a big chunk of returns. Had you gotten onto the wrong one, ask Jeeves, uh, AOL and stuff like that, you probably would have regretted. So really, it's, 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 it's making sure you get onto the right uh, uh, instrument, the right crypto that will last will still be there uh, when we see through this this exponential rise. So the second challenge is more interesting and, 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 and kind of funny, which is basically we think, we think again, this is not financial advice, we think that the challenge going ahead, it's not that the client won't make money, it's to try and get the client not to get out too early. Because if we are talking about an exponential rise, we're actually talking about things moving like 30, 40% gains, 50. Like for example, today we crypto is up as you as you wrote down there, 125%. It's exceptionally difficult to get a client to stay in when he sees his 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 investment up by 100%. But the fact of the matter is this if we are very early in the game, and if you're gonna write and see through and let the value unlock to its maximum, you need to hang on. So I think that would be the challenge. Ironically, that would be the challenge for for us and for clients is to not exit too early because we've entered at a very early stage. So I guess that's 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 what I wanted to share. Yeah. Now, um, what about those people who are saying, and this is actually an anonymous question, uh, hey Han, uh, Mr. Sunny, Bitcoin is up 125% on a year-to-day basis. You know, if I allocate some right now, wouldn't it be FOMO? I may be FOMOing into it. Uh, should I wait for the dip? I think maybe I'll wait for the dip. Uh, should I not wait for the dip? Or maybe should I incorporate some sort of different strategy? Yeah, in that case, Han, I'll pass you this question. What will you say uh, to those people who are looking at the quote-unquote right time to enter Bitcoin? Wow, good one. The age-old question of should I buy now or later or should I have bought previously? I think, um, you know, as a... Uh, and for me, like there is no magic formula, except the one that matters, which is 
actually, it's not about where Bitcoin is at the moment, right? Bitcoin be all-time high right now, if, if actually, right? Or it could be all-time low. Who knows, right? It's definitely not all-time high right now because the all-time high of 69,000, right? It might not be all-time low, right? We might go further down. But that's not the point. The point is not about where Bitcoin's price is. The point is about where your own exposure is, right? So in a portfolio men, uh, me, me, mentality, let's say you are, you've, you, you are an investor, you have a portfolio, you have bonds and you have stocks. And uh, 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 you don't have crypto. That means you don't have a, a, a more optimal portfolio that you could have, right? You could have a much more optimal portfolio right now. Um, and, and if you are zero exposure, you probably should get some, right? Why? Because I've already explained like over the long term, um, having a 40 to 50% return asset with a 40 to 50% volatility and almost no correlation to other assets means that your portfolio is going to outperform uh, a, a portfolio, similar portfolio to yours without it. So you should have some, right? Now, the opposite is true if you are have significant a uh, 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 Bitcoin or crypto exposure, right? If your portfolio is twenty percent Bitcoin right now, right, and you actually only want, uh, 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 you can only tolerate a certain volatility, you should probably look to reduce it, regardless of what the 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 the, the price of Bitcoin specifically is. I mean, to give you a sense, right? If if you took this portfolio view and you started this portfolio, right, this this pseudo model kind of fictional portfolio that you started, you started at an all time high. Uh, 69,000 November 2021, right? And you stay true to the allocation. You say, hey, look, I only want 5% Bitcoin. I'll start buying at 69,000, 5% of Bitcoin, right? And as as the value drops, sorry, as, as you know, crypto winter occurred and you realize, hey, what's happening? My portfolio is now very underinvested in crypto. You actually end up buying, buying more to meet your portfolio targets or portfolio allocation. And actually, you'll be up to date. Right, despite starting at literally the all-time high, right. So, uh, we've done all the numbers internally. All right, the right question to ask is not is it the right time to buy Bitcoin. The right question to ask is, is my exposure currently adequate or or a, a correct for my risk tolerance level, right, and the return that I want to get, right. So that's the better question to ask. Yeah, this is actually a very very interesting topic to to discuss, Con, because. People are actually wondering how they can DCA into crypto and what sort of percentage is all right. And at the end of the day, I think what you're trying to say is that everybody has got to fix their own percentages and their own risk tolerance. And then after that, allocate it uh, based on the percentages that you set yourself. And um, if the crypto market were to perform quite badly, then just that's just like an automatic DCA tool, right? The weightage within your portfolio itself will be much lower uh, kind of encouraging you to invest more into this particular asset. And let's say when it rallies into a significant weightage in your portfolio, that's probably a sign that you can uh, take some profits off the, off the table and uh, sort of rebalance your portfolio itself. Like, I think this is quite a fantastic strategy. Uh, Mr. Sani, do you agree with this? And um, what are you going to say to those people who are looking at the quote-unquote right time to enter this asset? Wow, okay. Uh it's a question which I think an example would, would help to explain it better. So currently, currently we are, see where, where are we now? Sorry, with Bitcoin, we are at 38, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah, 38. So, so everybody's waiting for 16, which was, was the low. They said, no, we're off, we're off 16, 100% higher. We're 38, 100, more than 100%. Oh, we've missed, we've missed the low 
fine. Okay, if you say you missed the low and you want to buy nearer to the low, you wait. Um, if it goes down and goes down and when it reaches 16, are you sure you're going to buy? You know, I, I can bet you my last dollar that when it reaches 16, you probably would would, would stand one side and say, uh, I don't dare to buy. I think it's going to go lower because it's come all the way down from 38 to 16. And that's really human nature. Human nature will always be when, you know, you want to buy at the lowest, but when it comes back to the lowest, you're not going to dare to buy it. And then when it starts to move up, you're going to say, hang on, wait, I want it, I want it to go back to the lowest point. I promise this time I'm going to buy. You know, so we will always have this discussion in our head that, you know, I want to buy at this level and such, but when the time comes, you actually don't execute. It's really, in my view, you need to move away from all of that. And whether it's buying at 38, whether it's buying at 16, to me, it really doesn't matter, you know, because my view is probably in a couple of years' time, you're going to see Bitcoin at 200,000, 300,000. If you are going to bicker and try and pick the most exact point to enter and let's say today you want to wait for it to go down to 20 or even 25 and all of a sudden bitcoin starts to move up from 38 to 55 and then you say oh no i've missed the boat i want to wait for it to come back to 38 and it continues to move up to 70 and you say no i've missed the boat i want to wait for it to come back to 55 first before i buy you know at the end of the day you probably will just lose out when Bitcoin is at 200,000, 300,000, it really doesn't matter whether you entered at 38 or whether you entered at 25 or whether you entered at 16. Because you've, the, the important thing is you have entered. You know? So if you take, to me, if you take a longer term view, then this, this discussion of where to go in, whether we've missed the boat or not, is pretty irrelevant in my, in my, in, in my point of view. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think as Han always said, I'm just going to quote you from here, Han. Stop speculating, start allocating, right? <laughs> uh, regardless of... All right. Thanks. Thanks for using the company line. <laughs> oh, really? Is that, a, is that your company line? <laughs> it's as our, our mantra here at Halogen. Right? You've got to stop you know, gambling and speculating, but uh, start allocating to your portfolio. Yeah, yeah. I, I went to one of you. Yeah, you should say stop, stop talking and start allocating. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, yeah, since we are talking about uh, platforms, right, let's just uh, gravitate towards that uh, because after that, we've got a whole other topic to talk about, which is EPF. Um, crypto platforms, Han, anywhere that uh, Malaysians can invest in crypto. I know Luno is the largest and most well-known exchange in Malaysia. It's also regulated by the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission, SC, SC Malaysia. So, uh, but let's but let's talk a bit more about those uh, grey areas, those unregulated exchanges, i.e., Binance, Huobi, etc. Uh, what are your thoughts on this these exchanges, and uh, perhaps where is the better or best place for Malaysians who are interested to invest in crypto? Where should they start? You mean you mean trade or invest? Uh, okay, let's let's do both, lah. Okay, um, if you mean to trade. Um, I would personally recommend not a specific exchange right now, but a, a, a kind of a principles approach, right? So three principles to follow, right? Number one, uh, uh, try to use a, a regulated exchange, right? And a locally regulated one where possible. If, if you're based in Malaysia, uh, someone's regulated locally, all kinds of protections come from that. It's not complete protection, but all kinds of protections come with that around uh, uh, you know, market behaviors. When you trade, you get fair pricing, that kind of stuff. Uh, um, so use a regulated uh, exchange to trade and, and locally regulated where possible. 
Um, number two principle, try to trade with low fees, low spread, and high liquidity, right? So uh, if, and that might clash with the first principle. So if even, even the local exchange, you know, we love them. They, they, they've done quite a lot for adoption here. You know, if you find that the fees for you when you're trading, depends on how, how frequently or how, how largely you trade. Uh, if they're not low, low fee enough, not low spread enough, and not high liquidity enough for your needs, then you might need to look else outside. Uh, uh, as long as you stick to the first principle, which is try to use regulated exchange just and, and do it locally where possible, right? Rather than must, 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 right? And then the third principle to follow, a very important one, and I'll explain why in a minute, is that you, you should look to, on exchanges, look to trade, not store. Why? Because, you know, I'll give you a sense. Like, like, so you go to the supermarket, right? Uh, you buy some stuff, right? That's where you exchange uh, money for goods, right? Do, do you then take your stuff and then put it in a, put it where the supermarket is? You don't, right? You take it home. Uh, you, don't, you don't leave your goods at the market, right? You, you, you take it home, right? And if you, you don't have enough space at home, you, you, you leave it with a trusted person, right? You leave it with a friend's house, right? Um, stuff like that, right? So uh, trade, not store, right? It's, it's good for trading. You should, you should trade it. In fact, I don't think they want you to store it even because it creates more risk for them. Uh, so that's kind of, uh, in short, lah, right? I don't have a specific recommended platform. I only have recommended principles, right? Regulated, uh, low fees, cost, and high liquidity. And last, do it, use it for trading, not for storing, right? And you should figure out some sort of your own storage solution, right? Whether it's store yourself, self-custody is a big thing. Uh, I, what I find is when I speak to investors, most people actually don't do self-custody well, right? Which creates a different kind of risk, right? And that, that's why we created our, our solution, right? Which is, you know, we don't, we don't custody your, your coins, as in a third-party trustee does it. We do it on a multi-sig, institutional multi-sig basis, so no specific one party can run away with your coins. It's kind of highly regulated that way. Uh, this is a bit different from exchanges, right? Where uh, your coins are actually sitting on the balance sheet of an exchange, right? Uh, this is a strange... This is a strange holdout in Malaysia. I think in Singapore, they, they, they stopped this already. In Singapore, you can't do that. But in Malaysia, we still do that, i.e. exchanges still do this, where they, the, your, your coins are actually their, their liabilities rather than segregated in a legal trust belonging to you. Right. So long story short, trading, there are three principles. Investing, uh, you, know, you can use us if you like, but more importantly in terms of investing is figuring out your own way to to, if, if you, if, to, to manage your portfolio risk right, or portfolio allocation. If you're able to do that, you don't really need us. But if you're not able to do that, uh, that's what fund managers are for, other than the, the party custody thing. Yeah, let me just uh, keep you there for a moment. Uh, talk a bit more about your, your current company, this new company, Halogen Capital. Um, you, specifically, what funds are you guys offering right now and how are the fee structures like? Uh, is it for retail investors or not? Yeah, good question. Um, at the moment, we Halogen Capital, we're Malaysia's first and currently only uh, uh, fund manager offering digital assets in fund structures like unit trust, wholesale funds. Uh, our flagship fund is the Halogen Sharia Bitcoin Fund. Yes, Sharia. It is the world's first Sharia compliant uh, uh, crypto fund um, uh, endorsed by the, the, our Sharia advisors, obviously. Um, uh, you know, uh, why, why just Bitcoin first? Well, it's the most well-known crypto. I dare say it's the first crypto that most people get into and it will be the same for institutions, right? So the fund is mainly for high net worth and institutional sophisticated investors. We do, we are able to cater for retail in some limited ways. 
uh, but but for for me, the 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 purpose of the fund really is to allow for an institutional investor to to get exposure to Bitcoin with that portfolio mindset that I had uh, given earlier. Uh, in the easiest of ways, like it's MFRS compliant, it's it's tax compliant, it's it's audit friendly, it has daily nav, all the good stuff. Um, not to say we won't have other funds. In fact, our next fund uh, you will see on the on the website now coming soon. It's the Halogen Sharia Ethereum fund uh, launching next month. Uh, it will be the first of its kind also. Uh, and we are planning an actively managed basket of top cryptos or top high, you know, large market cap cryptos. Uh, early next year so there's things on the roadmap so tune in right we can cater for all kinds of investors large or small uh, if you're interested just shoot me a dm or come and come and catch us on the website and say hey i heard i heard han he promised me all kinds of things and then our team will get in touch all right so if you guys are interested uh, make sure you go and check it out um, right now, let's actually move to a more interesting topic for some of you guys. Okay, uh, EPF. And they recently released their quarterly report, which saw a 33% jump in investment income. The results from the third quarter also show quite an increase. And Han, you recently wrote uh, really an insightful thread about EPF's projected payout this year. You estimated if things go well, 54 to 5.7% dividends. Uh, do you mind talking to us a little more about your analysis? Sure, no problem. Um, uh, yeah, I, I do this little thing where I like to use a little bit of logic and heuristic to kind of figure stuff out, right? And then and the finance net that I am, what I do every quarter or so is like, I like to take what EPF announces. They announce their kind of investment performance every quarter. And I like to sort of guess or, or or spot or you know what's the word they use when you type target uh exam questions right when you kind of spot exam questions right i think that's what they say uh and i try and spot the dividend for the year right um, so they announced epf announced quarter three results a couple of weeks ago i think the previous friday and and given that it's nine months of the year done right q3 so you know nine months of the year you can kind of take a sort of make a very educated guess on what the dividend could be for 2023 right Barring any major changes in the next kind of four to five weeks uh, in the markets, right? So let's get down to it, right? EPF announced nine-month income. That's the money they made from dividends and, and selling and realizing gains, right? Um, uh, of 47 billion, 47.8 billion ringgit. And this up from 33%, uh, 33 billion ringgit last year, the same nine-month period last year. So 33, 33% increase. So from 33 billion to 47.8 billion. 33% increase. So does this mean our dividend will increase 33% or so? Sounds good, right? Uh, if this continues, uh, I think probably not, right? But but it, directionally, yes, but not, prob not probably not 33% up, right? And two main reasons for this, right? Uh, number one, uh, uh, the total EPF balance or assets under management is, is higher this year, about 10 to 15% higher than last year, right? Which means a lot more, a lot more people uh, or a lot more money at least, right? Uh, for them to manage. So if uh, uh, if the size increases and your dividend, your your income doesn't increase, then actually your dividend will drop, right? So your 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 income will have to increase anyway. Uh, last year, I think on average about one nine hundred sixty billion assets under management due to all the withdrawals last year and the previous year. Uh, this year is close to about one point 
seven on average, I'd say. They said 1.9 in end of September. So if you average it out for the year, it's probably 1.7 trillion. It was a good 10, 12, 13% higher than last year. So that you know, kind of makes it even harder to pay out a high dividend, right? And that's the first reason. Second reason is that uh, ETF tends to smoothen out the dividend payout. What I mean by that is, uh, on good years, so they make a lot of income, they pay out a smaller percentage of it. Say so only they only pay out ninety percent. They keep ten percent, right? They pay out ninety percent, declare it as dividend. Uh, on a bad year, they may increase that to ninety five percent income. Why? Because income was low, so I need to pay a good enough dividend. Uh, pay a, a larger percentage of it, ninety five percent. So it generally ranges between ninety to ninety five percent of the income they create, they uh, generate, they, they issue a dividend. So by doing some mental math, blah, 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 uh, uh, you go, okay, 47.8 billion for nine months. If this continues at the same rate, usually it doesn't, but let's just, for simplicity, assume it does. You will get to about 64 billion of income for the year. And then if you divide that by the average uh, assets under management of EPFs, 1.07 trillion, you'll get about 6%, just under 6%, la, right? And then you think, okay, they pay up between 90 to 95%. That gives you 54 to 5.7% dividend, which is pretty close as a range. I, I, I hope it's at the higher end of that 5.7. But uh, uh, um, this is my spot, or rather my, my, guess, my best guesstimate based on everything we know so far. So that's kind of what the summary of my big long thread on this, which is, hey, look, using nine-month returns of EPF, can we guess what the dividend is based on the size of the fund as well as what happened in previous years, I think should be in the mid-fives, maybe a bit higher. Yeah, and the the prediction that you have is actually uh, somewhat the average that uh, EPF's dividend have posted in the past 5 to 10 years. Uh, in the past 10 years, uh, EPF's dividend averaged 6.035%, which is honestly quite an impressive asset. Uh, and let's just, let's just talk about this uh, returns because... Some Malaysians are still very unsatisfied with EPS returns. They say that it should be higher considering Malaysia's inflation, our ringgit falling, yada, yada, yada. But factually, Han, how does our retirement fund here compare to other retirement funds globally? Are we performing better than them or not? Let's take Singapore for example. Like if you have any data about this, or perhaps the US. Um... Maybe I'll ask, let Sunny uh, talk about Singapore, specifically CPF, because they, they have similar objectives, right? But, but, but uh, I'll talk about the most well-known fund uh, in the world, pension fund, the, the, Nordic, the, the, Norwegian, the Norwegian one, right? Um, they, they, there's something called the fund, which they, they funded initially with, with oil money. And then since then, it's just been used, used to invest for the betterment of, of Norwegians. And over the last kind of 20, 30, almost 30 years, I would say, uh, just under 30 years, they've generated on average about 6% return, right, uh, in, in, in their local currency terms. I think the biggest problem is not so much the return of EPF, honestly, right? Uh, so that, if you think about it, the, one of the best well-known Norwegian fund, the, the Norwegian fund, right, the one that everybody knows, uh, hopefully everybody knows. If you, you don't know what the Norwegian fund is, go research it, it's really kind of cool. Um, and they are doing about 6%, right, over the last 30 years. So for me, that's kind of like, oh, okay, that's kind of similar to EPF, right? Yeah, yeah, it is. So I guess EPF is not too bad, right? But the first thing uh, you've got to know is that um, uh, the people are not necessarily that upset about EPF get, giving you 6% a year. They are probably more upset about the fact that uh, uh, Ringgit has depreciated, right, uh, on average 3 to 5% a year versus most currencies that we care about, right? US dollar, Sing dollar, 
Uh, and and yes, a lot of people say, oh, but it hasn't depreciated versus yen and Aussie dollar and, and pound, right? Those three countries, separate issues. Uh, you know, but you know, the, the two most widely quoted currencies we care about, US dollar, Sing dollar, uh, it's depreciated significantly, which means that's a drag on, on an ETF, right? So if you're, you're sitting there, you're going, hey, look, uh, if ringgit is depreciating kind of 3% a year structurally versus sing, say the Sing dollar, for example, right? That means 6% isn't that impressive because uh, my wealth is not growing as fast as uh, Singaporean's wealth, for example. So I don't know if that makes any sense. Hopefully, hopefully that gives you a sense of why people are so upset rather than um, uh, uh, is it good or is it not good. Right, right, right. Okay, Mr. Sunny, you're, you're back up in the panel. Um, we were talking yeah. about uh, comparing EPF to other retirement funds. How does it yeah. affect uh, CPF in Singapore? CPF in Singapore, uh, ordinary account, 2.5% forever. <laughs> it's been there for the longest time, I know. <laughs> so so I think uh, I think, I think think 5.5% is good <laughs> because here it's only 2.5%. So, but it works slightly different. Yeah, um, how it works basically is the rate is fixed. Uh, the money that is actually accumulated by the CPF board is not managed by the CPF board. Uh, unlike in Malaysia where the EPF actually manages the money and tries to make a return. In Singapore, the money basically is then used to buy a special government bond specifically meant for CPF. So the government issues a bond, uh, uh, the CPF subscribes to that special bond. Uh, that special bond, if I remember correctly, is 2.5%. Two, two so effectively, uh, the CPF locks in a return of 2.5%, which it then turns around and and gives it over to the CPF members at 2.5%. Okay? But what it actually results in is the government takes away the CPF money from the CPF board and therefore the government um, will manage the money on behalf of the CPF. So it takes away the risk, the market risk away from the CPF. It's basically saying that you're the CPF, uh, you look after the pension uh, members, the membership of the CPF, let us deal with the uh, investment risk. Okay? You don't have to care about it, here's 2.5% for you. Um, so I think that's that's how. Yeah. So it it doesn't grow very fast. So we seldom um, get to see. Unlike Malaysia, I know in Malaysia often there are EPFs which hit a million and above. Here uh, I do see, but very seldom. Uh, so because it doesn't grow compounded at a very at a very high rate, only at about two and a half percent. Yeah. Uh, compounding at two and a half percent, and also looking at uh, the Sing dollar's performance in itself and uh, Singapore's economy as a whole, I I, I think it, it kind of adds up to the to, to to the portfolio's performance also, right? Well, uh, uh, yeah. I mean, again, you can't touch the money. Whether the Sing dollar strengthens or not doesn't really, in our case, doesn't bother the CPF because. At the end of the day, um, yeah, your money is still in there. Uh, the fact that it only grows two and a half is, I guess, we just have to take it. That's that's the way it is. What I do think the CPF um, uh, has, which maybe Malaysia doesn't have, and you may correct me if I'm wrong, is number one, the ability to use your CPF uh, to pay for your homes, the monthly installments 
almost all Singaporeans uh, use their CPF to pay. So that gives Singaporeans a very high disposable income because whatever we earn from our salary, we don't have to set aside money to pay for our home installments. Uh, our CPF takes care of it. Or, or rather, our CPF contribution takes care of it. And even the upfront lump sum, uh, we use our CPF to pay. So effectively, we, we buy our, our HDBs uh, cash, cashless or cash-free. Uh, you effectively could, could pay everything using your, C, your CPF. Of course, there are limits to adhere to, but in theory, you, you could use everything to pay your CPF. Um, and the second thing I find quite uh, good for the CPF is they have something called CPF Life which is an, an, an annuity. Therefore, at the age of 55, uh, you actually cannot withdraw everything. You must set aside some some amount of money, which will eventually become an annuity for you at the age of 62 or 65. Guarantees you a monthly payout until the day you die. So effectively, um, you will be able to draw down a pension, so to say, uh, until the day you die, uh, because you have set aside money uh, using CPF. So I think these two things are, are, are probably different from, from Malaysia. If, I, if I'm not wrong, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, yeah Han, uh, hearing what Mrs. Sunny said just now, is it pretty similar in Malaysia or is uh, EPF just miles off or something like that? No, no, no. It's uh, it's, it's not similar here. Right? We, we, we are a little less nanny state about it so epf at 50 you remove you can take out 30 percent of your funds at 55 you can take it out entirely uh, they are looking to change that to be closer to singapore right where you can't quite do that you can't uh, they they want to encourage the annuity uh, uh so but 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 yeah that's a bit different there and then second yes the epf themselves are the managers of the money rather than passing it to somewhere uh, and they, they don't just they they have actually a, a, a a dual mandate, right? The first mandate is to uh, service their, their their members, which is us, right? The you know they they service uh, um, the the contributions and the payouts. They they have to do that because of administrative role. And the second mandate is to do the investing, right? They they may use external investors, yes, but they they have to invest as well the money, not just you know collect and, and disperse. So the dual mandate here. The, the part where uh, Malaysians can draw withdraw 100% at age 55, was it? Yep, that's right. Yeah, yeah. That that has to be changed. I mean, I know I, when I say that, not many people are very happy about it. But to be honest, um, you, I don't know whether studies have been done. I, I guarantee you it won't last very long if someone can withdraw all their money at the age of 55. Uh, I mean, it's, 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 it's very difficult to... The, I mean, the life expectancy is 74. Uh, that gives you roughly about 20 years. I doubt anybody will be able to dis be disciplined enough to actually uh, make their money last after withdrawing at the age of 55. Um, if you force them, of course, it's not nice to be forced, but it's really for their own good uh, because then they are guaranteed a payout. So let's say, for example, uh, if I keep aside 200000 uh, at the end of um, so-called, what do you say? At the end of uh, 50, age 55, I keep aside two two hundred thousand. Uh, they call it uh, two hundred thousand, and then basically at the age of 65, 10 years later, I can start to withdraw probably one thousand five. Again, I'm just thinking at the top of my head. I can't remember the exact number. One thousand five, one thousand six, every single month for the rest of my life. Even if I live longer, if I live up to you know 
longer than the life expectancy of 84. Um, you know, the government, if the government doesn't do this in Malaysia, uh, and you're at the age of 55, you finish up your CPF at the age of 60 or 65, and you have 20 years left or 10 years left in terms of life expectancy, it becomes a government problem. Because again, government, you are a citizen, uh, the government has to look after you. And then we will have a whole cohort of people who are basically penniless uh, when they reach the age of 65. I mean, that, again, it's an assumption, but it just looks like it's going down that, that, road, uh, that road. Yeah, definitely some of the uh, policies within EPF itself uh, may have to be changed, the withdrawal uh, options. But uh, I think it's tough also uh, because politicians, if, it, if they were to propose something like this, then it may draw quite a bit of backlash for, from citizens. So uh, actually, let's, let's, let's dive right into EPF's investments. Let's talk more about it. I think this is quite an interesting topic also. Uh, according to their 2021 annual report, the total value of EPF assets under management was $1.008 trillion. Uh, fixed income made up 45%, equities 44%, uh, real estate 6%, money market 5%. Now, in terms of the uh, local equities, right, EPF actually held 146.4 billion ringgit in local stocks during 2021. So, considering the size of the uh, Malaysian stock market was 1.79 trillion in 2021, uh, EPF effectively commands about 8 to 10 percent of the Malaysian stock market. Not sure if you guys know about this. Huh? Uh, now, when we talk about EPF's domestic investments itself, uh, let's just Stay on this topic first. Uh, majority of them are in equities, in particular banking stocks such as Maybank, Public Bank, and RHB. And Han, with this breakdown in mind, right, is it actually wise to somewhat follow EPS allocation structure if we are new to investing? Hmm. I don't know. Let me see if I can break that down a little. Uh, I would guess the first thing you got to remember is that. Um, most people who work as full-time employees and even some employers, right, some directors pay, pay EPF uh, are already exposed to investing into EPF, right, because you have your contributions being put inside, right. Um, without going too on a big round circle, I'll say, the, you know, the EPF, you know, you mentioned it, 6% over the last 10, 20 years is one of the best things you can be in if you don't know any better or you don't know much and you are a bit nervous to do anything else, right. So, I mean, if you are looking to invest more, uh, you can't go too far wrong than, than just adding to your self-contribution if you can, right? Why? Why? Because, you know, five and a half, six percent consistently over 10 years, 20 years. That's, that's hard to beat uh, for a somebody who is a beginner or just has no idea, right? So if you go like, hey, no, what should I do? Uh, uh, if you really had to ask that question, probably you should just do more self-contribution if you can. But uh, there's a little caveat here, right? Uh, EPF is not that liquid unless you are over 50, right? So if you link more liquidity, means like you got to, I need investment for a specific purpose, which the EPS doesn't cater, therefore I need to start investing outside of EPF. That's a good reason to do it. Second good reason to do it is you, you kind of know what you're doing, you want to do it yourself. Um, uh, then if you're doing, if, you're, if you need more liquidity, one and two, you want to start investing yourself rather than and then think you can beat the EPF, uh, you know, 6% over the last 10, 20 years uh, uh, with a, statutory minimum of 2.5 every year to, to, to uh, they just have to pay out more than 2.5. No choice, right? By law. 
Um, so you have to keep in mind that the EPF is just like a very big unit trust, right? Which has to fit all kinds of investors, right? Whether you are starting out a career or you are retired even already, they have to do it with one single strategy. They call it their SAA, Strategic Asset Allocation. And, and because they have to fit all investors with one strategy, they tend to err on the side of conservatism or caution, meaning their portfolios are geared to be conservative. So you, you, you kind of alluded to it. Uh, there is some equities, but it's actually closer to 40% equities, right? That's in the same 60% uh, uh, bonds, money markets, and, then, and some real estate, right? Um, uh, but it's actually only 40% equities, right? Which, which, which to a young investor, right, might be a little underinvested, right? Uh, so you might want to take more risk, right? If you are close to retirement, you're, or you are at retirement, or you retire already, so you're over 50, Right, uh, and you're going to retire here in Malaysia. You spend in ringgit. You're not too concerned about the ringgit depreciation beyond uh, uh, yeah, some uh, certain important goods. Uh, the EPF is kind of perfect for you, right? You get five to six percent return. Uh, uh, super liquid. You can take it out anytime if you're over fifty, right? And and with the two point five percent statutory guarantee, right? Uh, any issues you just take out, It's fine, right? But like the point is, it's 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 pretty good for what it is. But if you're a young person, right? You're twenties or thirties. You can probably afford to take more risk than the EPF is giving. So it, for me, it's not about replicating what the EPF does because it's hard to replicate something uh, 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 doing exactly what it's doing, right? That kind of statutory guarantee, 5 to 6% return every year consistently, super hard, right? I, I don't know many people who can do that with that in mindset, right? Uh, but what you can do as a young investor to, to complement what you have with the EPF with a more risky approach, right? If you, you if I keep in mind that, you know, EPF is 40% equities and 60% bonds, money markets, a little bit of in, uh, real estate, tiny bit in there, right? Then you think, okay, but uh, I'm an aggressive investor. I need to have, uh, I heard I need to have at least 60, 70% equity, right? That means that you could probably complement your, your EPF portfolio with a, a higher risk portfolio, whether it's all equities or, 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 or significantly equities to balance out Right to to say hey look I'm just gonna put a forty percent rating a forty percent weight of equities in EPF multiply that and do a bit of mathematics and say okay what does that mean for my overall portfolio if I then have extra money I put it all in equities what's my equity percentage then is it close to what I think uh, what I need to be 70 percent equities if it's not then you can probably do more right if it is then you can you should probably uh, uh, put the rest into EPF. Uh, I don't know if that makes sense. Sorry, it's hard to, to demonstrate it over Twitter space. If I had slides, I could do it. But uh, uh, long story short, if you are 50 plus, just stay where you are. It's fine. EPF is fairly liquid for you. You want to retire in Malaysia, it's no problem, right? You get 5 6% ringgit, no problem. If you are younger, 30, 20, 30s, 20s, you may want to consider not replicating the EPF strategy because that's a uh, erring on the side of caution strategy, you may want to complement it with a much more aggressive basket of, of, of investments, whether it's equities, a bit of Bitcoin equities in there, uh, uh, alternatives, right? So I think that's kind of how I would look at it. Uh, overall portfolio view of your investments, including EPF, which is 40% equities, 60% bonds and money market real estate. I, I don't know if that, that's enough. Yeah, that's, that's actually more than enough. Lah. Uh, Mr. Sunny, EPF, the fund 1.008 trillion, that's for 2021, about 60% uh, invested domestically, the remaining, the remaining invested overseas. We talked about uh, EPF's allocations, allocations just now in equities, local stocks, banking stocks such as Maybank, Polybank, RHB, 
uh, with this breakdown in mind, is it wise to follow EPS allocation structure uh, if you're new to investing? Well, I guess, first of all, your allocation structure should follow your risk profile. Uh, EPF basically has a different risk profile and a different uh, time timeline, time frame than a lot of us. Because by right, if you look at EPF, they, they have a very long time frame because members don't need the money until until you know decades from 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 it i don't know when the lumpy uh, boomers are going to retire and, and, and so the, so they have to basically uh, manage their portfolio with in mind uh, that they will have withdrawals coming up at certain points of or in that timeline uh, so I, I i think sometimes they would keep maybe a little bit more liquidity a little bit more liquid assets and such not so much that it's part of their their strategic allocation. Maybe it's part of the uh, upcoming withdrawal. So again, it's not meant for for people like us to uh, wholeheartedly bulat bulat just follow uh, what the EPF EPF has like That's 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 my view. So we should just stick to what we have. Um, of course, you can have a look at what EPF is investing in. What I'm actually more interested to know is how does EPF basically generate uh, a dividend of five and a half percent. Uh, from its portfolio because, you know, judging from dividend from existing markets, especially the KLCI, um, I, I don't know whether that, it, uh, whether it can or rather whether mathematically it, it, it equates to the amount that they have actually paid out um, because it does seem to me that dividend is actually quite low across the board, especially if you're invested in, in bonds over the past couple of years, you, you would have basically gotten very little uh, so I'm just sometimes I try to um, um, reconcile that part. I don't I don't have an answer. I don't really Hans has, a, has an answer to it. But it'd be interesting to know if anybody knew um, whether it involved um, um, uh, other sources of income and so on and so forth. Just kind of top of my head is how do they actually maintain such a high uh, dividend, relatively high, when especially past few years when the risk free rate was was extremely low. Yeah, in that case, then I'll probably pass this to Hana because uh, on the web at least, I can't find anything uh, as to why EPF has managed to maintain quite a high payout for the past uh, 10 to 15 years. Han, you got anything on this? Yeah, I have it, uh, if you don't mind. Um, uh, I would say uh, if you do the numbers, they, they tend to check out. Right. What I mean by that, sorry, Sunny, just to give you a, a sense, is like you look at the individual allocations and you do a bit of sense check on them. It kind of checks out. So I'll give you a sense. Uh, you know, on the fixed income portfolio, uh, last year, 2022, it was almost half the fund. So half the fund was about 500 billion ringgit. Um, if you assume a 3.5% on fixed income, remember these are longer dated, uh, like Malaysian government securities, loans, bonds, right? Um, in 2022, it's probably 3.5% to 4%, right? Uh, so that's kind of on 500 billion, that's somewhere between 15 to 20 billion of income, which if you look at the EPF report, they reported 18 for the year. Okay, so that kind of, it kind of checks out, right? So you're looking at high threes, uh, percents on, on the coupon or the, 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 the realized income when they sell the bonds, maybe back to the market. So yeah, that, that kind of checks out. Um, and then you look at the equity returns, they say 40% of it is equity, of which we know about half of that 40% is, is foreign, uh, overseas. Uh, overseas markets, not so great last year, right? I think terrible, in fact, uh, in terms of equities. But in ringgit terms, though, I think that's where 
the EPF managed to eke out some gains because if you're invested overseas and your ringgit's depreciated by, I want to say, 40% in the last 10 years, that's an average of 3 to 4% just from FX alone. Now, this can go the other way, so they gotta, you got to be a bit careful, right? Um, so that's one. The second part about that is uh, uh, we see KLCI is very underperforming, right? It's gone nowhere. Right? In, in some cases, I think in the last 10 years, it's gone minus 2% or so. All right? But if you look at the net dividends, probably in the 4, 4.5% region, and I think that's where the EPF is, is kind of generating the remainder of the equity returns from. Uh, they are right, Sela, right? They are say the bulk of their returns come from overseas, actually, due to FX, due to higher returns from overseas uh, equities. So fair enough, fair income, right? Good, uh, good on them for, for increasing allocation overseas uh, over the last 10 years, right? Uh, because, uh, uh, you know, between KLCI and the Ringgit, that's, that's caused what the EPF performance is. So just a bit of, again, yeah. a, a bit of heuristics, a bit of just... Hans, do you know, I just a question, sorry. Do you know the FX... FX gains, do they book that in? Uh, they book it in. They do book it in. In fact, I think if you look at the last EPF report, they did even say, look, out of this kind of 48 billion, 4 billion is FX gains. Right? Mark to market gain. Okay. Right? Mark to market, mark to uh, market gain. Uh, okay. yeah, yeah. So in some years, it could actually be, be negative due to FX. Yeah, that's why I said have to be, be careful yeah. about uh, uh, exposing yourself to that, right? It, it saves you in the last five years or so since 1MDB. Uh, actually, almost 10 years now, whoops. Uh, saved you in the last 10 years because of, you know, ringgit depreciation due to all kinds of stuff like 1MDB. But that might not save you in the next 10 years, especially if the ringgit consolidates. Yeah, Han, uh, I think you may have, I may have lost you there or, or, or you stopped speaking, right? Uh, actually, no, I just, uh, I muted, sorry. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So, yeah, um... I think I find it quite impressive la, for EPF to deliver such consistent returns, uh, especially when we start comparing it to other assets as well. So right now we are done with our questions for the night. Let's move on over to you guys, the listeners. Right? If you have any questions to ask the speakers, first of all, you can step up to be a speaker yourself and uh, we'll discuss your questions. Next, is if you're a bit shy, you can directly uh, message us, okay, I'll check our DMs and uh, we'll put your questions up here to the speakers. Alternatively, you can also comment your questions in the comment section, bottom right-hand corner of this Twitter space. Now, we do have uh, quite like one or two questions from our Patreon members. Um, and this question is about uh, EPF. With KWSP increasing its local investment up to 70% of its portfolio, I don't think it has reached reached 70% yet, but it's pretty close, if I'm not mistaken, about 62, uh, 62.3%. Okay. Um, and uh, do you think this has contributed to the pump in some of the blue chip stocks in Malaysia, i.e. Maybank, the Naga National? Uh, what happens next year when KWSP hits 70% and has less money to invest in the local market. Are we going to see some cool-off in blue-chip stocks uh, or the KLCI index? Oh, uh, quite a long question. Han, you want to take it first? Um, I'll try to take it. Uh, I don't... I, I look casually and cursorily at KLCI because it matters, I guess, because I see here in Malaysia. Uh, I mean, the thing I'll say is, uh, quite simply, that if you look at it, actually, the past... I want to say the past... Honestly, the past year, right, the top 30 stocks have actually gone nowhere, right? Uh, they've really gone nowhere uh, 
if you look, in fact, you look at end of November last year, KLCI, which is the top top thirty stocks, uh, including your blue chips like uh, Maybank, Public Bank, Tanaga, uh, Petronas Chemical stuff. KLCI on the end of November was one seven one four seven six. Right today, one four four six. So literally two percent different from last year. Right. So um, to say that there's big rally, I think is is probably uh uh, uh <laughs> I guess a big rally from a super low in June one three seven zero or so. But that's still only four for five to five percent. I think uh, honestly, the, the 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 we are very undervalued. Uh, because you think about it, right? You look at the the profitability and the dividends of of the constituents within KLCI is actually growing. Meaning profits are growing. You can, uh, as in, I think Shinji, you keep updating us on Public Bank and Maybank and RHB all that, and you can see like profits growing consistently, give or take a COVID year or two, but but consistently over the last ten years. And I think that's and despite the KLCI not going anywhere, that means uh, PE ratios are. are, are are dropping right we mean which means for every unit of index or in the very unit of the the stock market you buy you actually get more uh, profits right so for me i think that's a little of the secret of the epf2 right they they really harvest profits right they they they, they harvest dividends uh so to give you a sense uh, it's not so much driven by epf i know epf is a big monster right they they hold i, I want to say somewhere between 15 to 20 percent of our stock market they are a big monster indeed right uh, but for me, uh, uh, it's it's not about having less or more to 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 invest in equities this year or next year because every year, people contribute and every year less people withdraw. Right, I think the net in in inbound to EPF is seventy billion a year. Right, uh, so that's a lot. Right, and there's a lot to go to the local market. There's a lot to go to the the overseas market. There's a lot to go to the bond market. Uh, and don't forget, if foreign equities continue to outperform. Uh, overseas equities, then it will start getting becoming a larger percentage of EPF, which they then have to sell to pare down, and and then buy local, uh, bonds and stocks, which then prop up the local market too. So, uh, just to give you all a sense of, you know, the various things that move lah, right? On one hand, if overseas markets imp- uh, continue to outperform, then EPF will have no choice to but to sell it, right? To to rebalance their their portfolio, and number two. The net contributor per year is like 70, 80 billion, right? Uh, so there's 70, 80 billion new money every year flowing into the EPF to be invested. So there's that kind of support level, support level of liquidity coming, despite what everyone says lah, about increasing local versus foreign. It's really actually quite hard to move the needle in a single year. It takes time. Yeah, and you mentioned just now about uh, EPF being a monster and uh, owning quite a large chunk of the Malaysian stock market. Uh, the specific percentage is uh, 8.18% in uh, 2021, which is uh, pretty close to your estimation, about 10, almost 10, sometimes 15%. Yeah, uh, oh, right. That's the whole market, we, we, not, not, not KLCI, right? Oh, oh, sorry, sorry. Okay, okay. In that case, yeah, meaning then, like because uh, they, they don't really invest in like the tiny ACE, ACE market and the small, small, smaller uh, stuff. So uh, in my mind, it was KLCI, but like, uh, yeah, so, uh, but if you talk about whole market, yeah, 10% sounds about right. Lah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, let's move on to the next question. We have Azim over here. Azim is a speaker. Hi, Azim. Can you hear us? Uh, Azim, I think you need to unmute yourself to talk to the speakers. You, do, you have, do you have any questions for us? Okay, maybe maybe we will uh, circle back to you when, when you're ready. Okay, I'm just checking the comments section right now. 
Will we ever see crypto being used as legal tender in Malaysia? Ooh. Um, Mr. Sunny, since you're a Singaporean, anyway, it doesn't really relate much to this question, but uh, I'll pass it to you first. <laughs> um, un- unlike, uh, nothing is nothing is 100%, or nothing is uh, 100% unlikely, but highly unlikely. Lah. Um, when you use crypto, means to say you are potentially giving up your sovereignty over your, your currency. Um, so you must be prepared to uh, to give up that sovereignty. Uh, um, you know, I could see I could see countries who who have local currencies which are very very badly battered down. People have lost confidence in their currencies. It's a bit like you know when in Argentina when people lose lose um, uh, confidence in the local currency, then they switch to using dollars, for example, uh, in Lebanon and, and in many other places and so on. So if if it reaches that point, people may not switch to dollars, maybe they will switch to using crypto by that time, or, or Bitcoin, basically, Bitcoin. Um, it could happen, but like I say, Malaysia doesn't have a history of that kind of situation of high inflation, civil war and stuff, so... For Malaysia's case, uh, I, I, I doubt so given what we've experienced so far. Lah. Yeah, uh, Han, same question. Uh. Crypto legal tender in Malaysia, is it a fast stretch? No, I don't think it's fast stretch at all, but I'm not saying it'll happen tomorrow. I think as a casual observer, what you want to check out first, or rather before Malaysia goes, is first, any other countries other than the two that are currently using it as legal tender, I think... The Central African Republic, I think, is using it as legal tender and El Salvador, the most famous one. So the two countries using it as legal tender. For me, it's about who's next on the list that may uh, may, may fall first, falls right back with use, may adopt it first, right? right? Because of all the things that Sunny said around their own currencies being under pressure. Uh, um, when the likes of, uh, first globally, people like, you know, Turkey... Uh, Lebanon, Venezuela, Argentina, big countries, actually uh, some of those countries, Turkey, Argentina, bigger than us, right? They go, right? Because if they, when they go, then there's a signal that, hey, look, like something's happening here. Uh, we better check this out, get ahead of the curve as an emerging market country, right? Uh, then the next kind of uh, 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 domino to fall will be one of the ASEAN countries. Like, I, I, I can't predict which one. But uh, the point here is when it gets closer to home, Right, not beyond just this one African country, one Central American country, when when it starts becoming uh, a legal tender in a larger emerging market country, so uh, you know Turkey, Argentina, uh, uh, Pakistan, uh, uh, etc., and one in Southeast Asia, ASEAN, where it's really close to home. I think that's when the odds of it happening will just you know significantly increase because ultimately, like uh, it, it's not an alternative to our own currency, right? Our own currency will go up and down as uh, in a micro level. It's really around an alternative to gold and US dollar. So I think that's kind of, uh, uh, what I'll say is, uh, I never say no, but there are other dominoes to fall first. So as, as Malaysians, watch those other dominoes first uh, before like preparing yourself. Yeah, definitely will be something to look forward to, I guess. Uh, just two more questions left for the night before we end the session. Uh, this one is also from one of our patrons. Is KWSB potentially missing out on higher overall returns by having to allocate uh, roughly 60 to 70% of their funds to local markets? 
And at the end of the day, is this the right move by the government in the long run? Wuhan. Uh, imagine if uh, EPF were to allocate more into overseas assets and, and, and not too much into local assets, what would that do to EPS portfolio? Will it lead to more profits? Or are we sticking with 60 to 70%? How is it in the long run? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, as a general point, right, if you increase your universe of investment assets as well as increase your ability to invest in those assets, you're going to be able to generate more returns if you have competent people in EPF, and EPF has very competent people, right? So for me, that kind of that kind of statement is very straightforward. Yes, they will definitely have better returns. I think uh, I, I mentioned the Norwegians, right? They are a bit hampered by their size. They are huge, right? Um, and they, they can do 6% or so returns. Um, but if you look at the smaller pension funds, right? The, the kind of uh, Australia Super, for example, right? They can do 8, eight, eight plus returns. Uh, over a long period of time, 10, 20 years, right? Because they don't have these kind of restrictions. They are still significantly invested in Australian stuff, but they don't have a specific restriction. They, they, they are a little more, they are a little freer to invest uh, overseas and they do, right? They do. Uh, um, uh, uh, if you look at some of the, the, the US pension funds, they, they do invest not just in, in, in overseas markets, but also alternatives significantly to generate that extra return. And, and, and for me, that's kind of, a natural statement. Like if you can invest in more things and you are allowed to invest in more things with a higher percentage, right? Uh, some of those things will be better if you are smart people, right? And they will generate better returns. But for whatever reason, we're stuck with this kind of 70, 30 or 65, 35% uh, uh, allocation for, for Malaysia versus overseas, right? Partly because we don't really want to expose significant amount of investing public to significant foreign currency movements, right? Imagine if ringgit strengthens 10%, that impacts your portfolio return, right? If, if you're over, significantly overseas. So that's kind of just general statements there. Lah. So currency can go both ways. Right, right, definitely. Now, Mr. Sunny, I got an interesting question for you. This one is from one of the audience over here. Why not just the VOO? By VOO, uh, I'm assuming that he means the Vanguard 500 Index Fund ETF, which is the S&P 500 Index, uh, which has, by the way, returned 8 to 12% every year. So I'm assuming that his question is, why not just invest in VOO uh, instead of any other asset in that, in that matter? So nothing to do, I mean, this is a question outside of the EPF question, right? Nothing related to the EPF. Lah. I don't think it's related to EPF. Oh, okay, okay. And just, and just oh, thank you very much. And just before that, uh, I think Azim, Azim has unmuted himself. So, um, Azim may have a question or so. Yeah. Um, but let me answer this first. Um, it's easy to, to, to now look back at, and, and you're saying, saying that the ETF is the S&P 500, right? It's easy to look back at the S&P 500 and come to the conclusion that it would have been a great move to just put everything in. Every year it earns 8%, you know, and stuff like that. Um, open up an S&P 500 chart, um, push it all the way back to the 1970s until now. Yes, you will see that actually the chart is on an upward swing, okay? Um, but in between that is not a straight line. There are periods of time where basically it actually moves sideways and it can move sideways for extended period, five, six, sometimes even seven years, eight years. 
and then it starts to move up again. So it's a step-like manner where it goes up sideways, goes up sideways. Okay. And that is why, typically speaking, diversification theoretically works better because you don't get stuck in a particular um, region, geographical region, for six, seven years and you don't earn anything and, and, and such, you know, it goes sideways. Um, so therefore, you know, there are already people arguing that based on the valuation of the S&P 500, again, this is what people say and, and, and there's some truth to it. Based on the valuation of the S&P 500 today, in theory, the forward-looking estimates of returns for the S&P is flat because the current valuations already priced in um, the next couple of years in terms of what the S&P is supposed to return. Um, so it actually, so I just want to say that you should keep an open mind um, because if for some reason or if money starts to move away from the S&P in, into um, um, emerging markets, for example, uh, you don't want to be stubbornly um, um, invested in the S&P 500 based on the past 10 years uh, performance, you know, and therefore you miss out on. on. So you should actually um, be less uh, uh, tied to one particular uh, uh, investment. That's that's basically one thing. You know, you must really also understand that the S and P has gone up for one sole reason, and that is basically the the not say one sole, but the primary reason is basically the massive amount of liquidity. Uh, so unless the Federal Reserve, uh, unless the 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 U.S. government starts to to monetize its debt uh, and create another wave of of liquidity quantitative easing. You know, it may be quite difficult for, for the stock market to repeat its performance over the past 10 years. So the 8-9% that we've seen uh, and so on, it's going to be a difficult, difficult task. Yeah, so that's basically what, how I think. Be a bit more nimble. Um, um, and what past performance is basically no guarantee that that's going to be future performance. Yeah, yeah well said, Mr. Sunny. Uh, I'll pass this question to Han as well. Why not just allocate entirely into the VOO since historically it has returned 8 to 12 percent? Um, I mean, I'm a big believer in generally American exceptionalism, right? Generally, I mean, it's just a general statement. They, they attract, you know, yeah, young people, like forward-looking people, entrepreneurial people. With young, forward-looking, entrepreneurial, hard-working people, you're going to have a very dynamic economy, right? And that's been proven out for how I want to say 100 years, 150 years, right? So until that changes, which, you know, we're starting to see some of this fray out a bit because you're starting to be a bit more populist, right? Starting to be a bit more doubtful of capitalism as a, as a concept. I think that, that might change. Personally, I think uh, two things. Number one, uh, while uh, we all have seen the kind of the, the, the benefits in ringgit terms, at least over the last eight, nine years due to uh, one MDB plus, uh, you know, successive government uh, um, uh, policies uh, causing investor confidence to be not so great. Uh, that impacting the ringgit. I think ringgit is down forty percent over uh, versus US dollar in the last eight nine years. Um, that can reverse right, and then you don't want to be stuck in a situation where yeah, cool, your S and P performance, ex American exceptionalism continues. You know, you're getting eight nine ten percent a year. Yeah, pretty good, but like, and then that 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 gets dampered by a forty fifty percent drop in in the US dollar versus the ringgit over ten years. Uh, and keep in mind that uh, until 
uh, until recent times, right? Actually, the ringgit was strengthening versus US dollar, right? So it was depegged, repegged, depegged in 05 and it continued to strengthen uh, from from kind of 3.8 down to just below 3 even. So that's kind of what 30% drop in, in in eight years from 2005 to 2013, right? Can your investment take that, right? So keep in mind that it goes both ways. Uh, as a Malaysian investor, you're investing for a Malaysian retirement, unless you're retiring in the States, different, different story. Uh, assuming you're retiring in Malaysia, as a Malaysian investor, you want to make sure that, hey, look, like uh, I want to be sufficiently diversified locally and overseas, not just put the whole thing into a, a foreign currency that I may not retire in and may go against me. So just keep that in mind. Lah. Yeah, well said. Lah, so I think um, that about wraps up our session tonight. Thank you guys so much for Raj, joining. Has, uh, sorry, has Asmin, Asmin he unmuted himself. Is he still there? Uh, he's no, he's, he's no longer there already. Actually, oh, he, I, thought, he, I saw him he, as a speaker. Okay, okay. Uh, he, he dropped down as a, he dropped down as okay. a listener. Yeah, yeah. So I think uh, that, that wraps up our session tonight. Hopefully, you guys learned something. Let me just retrace back to the speakers. Uh, really thank you for their knowledge sharing with us tonight. Um, last words, Mr. Sunny, to wrap up our entire session. Maybe you want to talk a bit about Bitcoin or EPF or something else. Wow. <laughs> okay. Uh, sorry, a bit, a bit, a bit shaked uh, late at night. Just still driving home from the office. Uh, maybe I pass it to Hans and let me, let me just gather my thoughts. Yeah. Sure, sure, sure. Hans, sorry to put you on the spot. Uh. Um, but overall, just, just, just to give you a few ideas of what we talked about tonight. Uh, we started off with Bitcoin, right, as an investment class. Uh, why it's pretty unique. Okay, it's scarcity. It's also a a settlement network, right? And why people actually dislike Bitcoin because of its volatility. We also talked about how we can position ourselves in a volatile asset in that uh, we allocate a tiny percentage depending on your risk preference. If you're low risk, probably 1% to 2%. If you're gearing towards a higher risk portfolio, maybe high single digits. But obviously not too much, otherwise you will have a lot of emotional swings, not just price swings, okay? And then after that, we, we, we kind of transitioned into EPF, right? We talked about um, EPF's projected payout, which you also kind of predicted that it's kind of likely range between 54 to 5.7% this year. And then after that, we settled on EPF's uh, investment assets locally, which is about uh, major banking stocks, Maybank, Public Bank, etc. So as a whole, this session, um, I'll, I'll leave it to you to wrap it up. Go ahead. Okay, no, thanks Shinji for the invite. I think really interesting discussion today. Uh, a wide range of discussion from one end of the risk spectrum, Bitcoin. Uh, we talked about, you know, how uh, uh, prices can go up and down, goes from 69 to 15 now to 38. When should I enter? Uh, I, I guess two things to say. The first is that you've got to look at it from a portfolio perspective rather than where the price is. If you're underinvested, increase your investment. If you're overinvested, yeah, you can consider staying where you are slash cutting it down, right? Because if, you know, it's not so much about where the price is, it's about your, your personal portfolio and what you're comfortable having, right? And just remember, like Halogen Capital, right? We want to focus on getting people to stop speculating on this asset class, stop trying to trade it up and down, but start thinking about it in a portfolio context and start allocating, right? You can really improve your portfolios. And we're here to help with that, right? If you don't want to do self-trading, you want someone to help manage that, that's what we're here for. So uh, just ping me, ping my team, check out halogen.my. Um, and then we talked about EPF, you know, do follow me on Twitter. I will post a bit on EPF some more. 
uh, they will come out with their dividend in kind of end February, early March, hopefully end February rather than early March, uh, where we'll break it down uh, and then you'll really understand how is your money actually uh, being generated right? or how is your wealth being generated through EPF with the full year report. So hopefully you stick around for that. You know, you can follow Shinji at The Futurist. He will probably be, be talking a lot about that too. They really enjoy reading. So that's what I'll say. Yeah, definitely. Uh, not just both of us, like Mr. Sunny here. So we got to give him uh, a lot of the credit. He's been uh, doing a lot of insightful posts as well over at uh, Singapore, not just Malaysia, right? So Mr. Sunny, have you gathered, gathered your thoughts yet? <laughs> really? <laughs> we kind of... Yeah, okay. I just, whatever remaining uh, brain cells I have, I'll just, I'll just uh, say what I can say. Yeah. So if you talk about Bitcoin, uh, I'm... Uh, on a personal basis, I'm a full believer in in, in, in the potential of Bitcoin. My my 19 year old kid is now starting uh, to invest, and the first thing he asked me, so what what should I do? I said, uh, open up a, 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 a digital asset account, and and every he's in national service now. Every month you get your salary, put hundred sing dollars into Bitcoin. That's why I told him, you know, and then keep doing that for, you know, donkey years and such. So, so when it comes from me to tell my son, you probably know how much conviction I have uh, for that. On EPF, um, I want to just share a short story, which is my own EPF itself. I've never tracked my EPF. I've never used, you, here we can use our EPF to buy stocks and shares and such. I've never done that. I've just passively kept it there. I've used it to buy gold uh, because it allows you to use 10% of your EPF to buy gold. Uh, sorry, CPF to buy gold. I've done that. But the rest of all, I've just let it be there and I just didn't really bother about it. So I'm near to my retirement. More recently, a couple of years ago, I started to open my EPF uh, balances and have a look at it. And I was shocked that I actually had quite a substantial amount inside, although it could have been more if, it's, if it was uh, more than 2.5%. But still, uh, as we say, alhamdulillah, um, it was pretty shocking because I don't think I would have been able to save as much on my own uh, if I had not put money, if EPF or C, sorry, CPF had not uh, withdrawn part of my, taken part of my salary and put it one side. Uh, so so I'm actually quite thankful and that really is the, the, the one of the mandate of, of CPF and EPF, which is to help you prepare for your retirement. And I think it has helped me uh, uh, since I'm just a couple of years from my retirement. Uh, and it's been, uh, and it's something which I would also highly encourage my children or even anybody I know. You know, if you have an EPF, CPF, you, con you try as much as possible to continue to work. If you have additional money, put it in, put it in inside. Because why? Uh, because at the end of the day, it comes back to you, and it is a forced savings basically. Because I know myself, you leave that kind of money with me, I'll probably go and put everything into Bitcoin or whatever the case is and you know and then and put it at risk but at the very very least everything even if I screw up everything uh, at least I still have my CPF now so I'm quite thankful on, on uh, for that so basically yeah that, that would be my advice um, keep your fund your EPF fund your CPF keep it keep it there especially your, you guys having six over percent the compound is such such a good compound uh it will grow and and enjoy it uh, when you're when you're in your retirement yeah just a quick knowledge bite for you guys uh, how to quickly calculate how long it takes for your fund to double right it's called the rule of 72 so you take 72 you divide it by any rate of return so in this case let's say epf past 10 years the return is six percent per year 
So 72 you divide it by 6, uh, that's 12 years. So you will take 12 years for the funds in your EPF account, the current funds, to double. And then after that, you guys can make your own calculations. Okay. As regards to crypto, remember to do your own research after the session. After we end the session tonight, don't be like, oh, Han said this, Mr. Sunny said that, I'm going to go all in on this asset or, or whatever. Okay. So make sure, uh, don't take whatever we say as financial advice and make sure you do your own homework. I guess that brings us to the end of our session. And uh, by the way, it only takes two seconds. Click on the profiles of each of these speakers. Tap on follow. They share a lot of knowledgeable insights. And while you're at it, you can follow us as well. Plus, if you miss all of our previous sessions, don't worry, it's all recorded. You can check out our Spotify. The links, everything is in our bio. All right, guys. Thank you guys so much for joining. Really, thank you, Han, Mr. Sunny, for agreeing to do another session again. And uh, we'll see you in the next one. Bye, guys. Good night.